Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Everyone can identify a film, a TV show, or some other media that they consider unwatchable. Yet the word has a variety of meanings. In the edited collection, Unwatchable, 50 essayists discuss both their understanding of the term as well as examples they consider particularly apt. I recently spoke to the four editors of the collection, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nicholas Baer, Maggie Hennefeld, Laura Horak, and Gunnar Iverson. Welcome all. Hey, everyone. Hey. <laughs> well, I'm glad to speak to the four of you about your edited collection, Unwatchable. Uh, it's a group of 50 essays that review the concept of media we choose or want or need to avoid. The book covers more than film, but Cinema is obviously a primary focus, so that's why I felt that this was uh, particularly useful for the New Books and Film podcast. It'll get published on some of our other channels as well, so it's not like it'll only be in the film group, but that will hopefully uh, get other people a chance to get a, get more ideas about it. But before we get started, I'd like to talk to each one of you individually to get some background information. If you could introduce yourself and talk about what you want to say about yourself, and we'll start with Nicholas Baer. Hi, thanks so much for um, for interviewing us. It's really a pleasure to be in conversation with you. So I'm Nicholas Barry. I'm currently a collegiate assistant professor at the University of Chicago, and I work on film and media, critical theory, intellectual history. Um, the previous book that I co-edited was The Promise of Cinema, German Film Theory, 1907 to 1933, which was another kind of large-scale edited volume that collected primary sources of early German film theory. Um, what attracted me to Unwatchable in particular was an opportunity to think about the now, so contemporary visual culture, um, but also in the broader kind of trajectory of aesthetic theory as well. Thanks, Nick. Um, Also, we have Maggie Hennefeld, who I interviewed recently about her book, Specters of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians. She actually suggested Unwatchable as a topic, as as a book to look at. So I want to make sure I thank her specifically for bringing the book to my attention. But Maggie, if you could give us your background. Sure. And thanks so much, Joel, for having us back on the podcast. It's great to speak to you again. So I am an assistant professor of cultural studies and comparative literature at the University of Minnesota. And I've been in residence at Princeton University this year at the Institute for Advanced Study. Most of my research focuses on silent cinema, comedy, and gender politics, like my first book, Specters of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians, which you've mentioned. Um, But like Nick said, we were drawn to the topic of the unwatchable, first of all, because, you know, as someone who works extensively in the archives on filmmaking from the late 19th and early 20th century, it was very tempting to be able to engage with the present moment and um, uh, edit a volume on a topic that's so timely. Uh, and the, and I'm sure we'll get to this more in the interview, the um, uh, 
I'm sure listeners will be unsurprised to hear that the concept of editing a volume on the unwatchable emerged in the wake of the 2016 presidential election, but we can talk more about that later. Great. Thanks, Maggie. And now we have Laura Horak. Hi, uh, I'm an associate professor of film studies at Carleton University, and I work on gender and sexuality and film history and particularly queer and trans cinema and media. I'm really interested in how um, different kinds of audiovisual media at times of technological change can help shape and influence the way gender and sexuality changes, the way we consider what's normal and what's natural. Uh, I wrote a book on cross-dressed women in early American cinema called Girls Will Be Boys, and now I'm working on a kind of cross between IMDb and Wikipedia for films made by transgender people. It's called the Transgender Media Portal. Thanks, Laura. And finally, not least, but last, is, 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 is Gunnar Iverson. Yes, I'm a full professor of film studies, also at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. But I am from Norway and used to be a professor in Norway for many years. But now I have ended up on the North American shore, where I work on documentary, I work on sound in cinema, and I also work on Scandinavian cinema, and especially Norwegian cinema. Thanks, Gunnar. And once again, as I say, it's great that uh, I could get all four of you together. Um, obviously, as we talked about before we started recording, this is, an un- to me, an unusual project given four editors and large number of essays, 50 essays in this case, though many of them are short, but still that number of uh, contributors to work with. Um, the book is a cal- very egalitarian. You're all listed in alphabetical order in the title page. And so uh, I'd like to talk a little bit, and um, whoever wants to, uh, we'll start with Nick only because that's the easiest way for me. And and talk. let's talk a little bit about how this whole thing happened in the first place, what brought this book together and and the various roles. But we'll start with Nick, but feel free as we go through to each of you can bring your ideas in as to how you felt things happened. Nick? Yes, thanks so much. Uh, so there were kind of a confluence of factors that led to um, this topic seeming like a useful one to take up for the volume uh, a couple of years ago. Um, as Maggie mentioned, one of them obviously was the election of Trump and also Brexit, so two kind of seemingly unfathomable geopolitical events in 2016. Um, that was also um, a time when uh, it was a very contentious Oscars year um, with mm. the kind of debate between um, La La Land and Moonlight and the, the famous flub uh, about who won the best picture. Also that year, the kind of precursors of what would become Me Too with um, Casey Affleck and Nate Parker both um, uh, you know, um, being the subject of controversies in terms of their past uh, relations with women. Um, we were also thinking about the Whitney Biennial that year, which um, was the kind of site of a controversy because of Dana Schutz's painting of Emmett Till um, and led to debates about um, the politics of a white woman depicting black suffering. Along those lines, also the kind of police brutality cases and the circulation of viral black death um, things like the Flandreau Castile case, um, about which we have a few essays in the volume. And finally, debates about trigger warnings on college campuses. So my own university, University of Chicago, 
um, actually put out a statement to the incoming freshman class uh, a couple of years ago saying um, that it was against trigger warnings and safe spaces. Um, and it, it, so these were all kind of things that came together that lent us a sense that the concept of the unwatchable had an extraordinary currency in our contemporary media and political environment. That's interesting, given when you talk about the Oscar two, in 2016, we had it happen again this year yeah. with uh, you know, the Green Book versus uh, some of the other films that were nominated. And so obviously yeah. it's nothing new. And Spike Lee found Green Book's reception of the award uh, unwatchable himself. Didn't he walk out during their acceptance speech when all of the white producers walked on stage to accept the award? So um, someone else want to talk about what led you to go ahead and decide to be, I mean, how did you each reach reach together to, to come together as the four of you? Well, um, I believe Laura and Gunnar were visiting me to give talks at the University of Minnesota, and we were um, having a meal trying to avoid talking about uh, the election itself or Brexit or all of the kind of um, horrifying geopolitical developments unraveling around us that Nick alluded to earlier. And in the context of specifically not talking about the election or about politics, we got into a conversation about La La Land, of all things. And there's an interesting kind of displacement that had been happening more and more that I noticed, particularly in my social media feed. People who were really upset about everything they saw happening around them in the world, um, kind of uh, I don't, channeling their despair via takedowns of popular culture media objects that they really despised, such as La La Land was certainly um, a kind of lightning rod for these cultural debates. Uh, Manchester by the Sea, which Jack Halberstam has an amazing takedown of in the volume. And so it was actually in the context of a conversation about La La Land that we came up with the concept like, ooh, what media object do you find to be unwatchable and why? That was the question we asked each contributor when we invited them to write an essay for the volume. And then, you know, we're all good friends. We've all worked together before in various capacities. And the project just, I don't know, it kind of had legs of its own. It was, it was amazing how um, smoothly the whole thing unfolded. And I can talk more about some of the practical aspects. So as Maggie and Gunnar and I were like, wouldn't it be fun to just ask all these people we respect and find so interesting what they found unwatchable and why? And we immediately had the idea of um, getting Nick involved since he had such great experience doing um, big volumes and also thinking through, um, you know, aesthetic philosophy and things like that. So um, we basically started brainstorming and just made a humongous list of all the people, all the artists, all the scholars, all the critics that we wanted to know what they found unwatchable. And then we kind of started dividing them up, trying to get uh, different kinds of coverage, a diversity of voices, uh, more emerging people, more established people, uh, and started sending invitations. And unlike most academic projects, ours was different in that we had a really short and a really tight and real deadline. We basically gave them three months over the summer to write uh, these 1,500 word essays, up to 1,500 words. Um, we were also strict with the word count. And um, so there were lots of people who were like, oh, it's a great idea, but I don't have time. Um, but 
the essays we did get were incredible and we were really happy and we didn't tell we didn't tell people what type of thing to work on so they came to us and then once we had all these these essays we started sorting them um and uh figuring out like what kinds of connections could be made uh but each of us um were kind of in charge of wrangling a quarter of the writers. And then once we got things, we kind of organized it and then we divided up it into little sections so that we, we each took turns writing the small section introductions and then we collaborated on the big introduction. And uh, the whole thing was like from when we had the idea to when we submitted it, it was about a year. And then it was about a year of production. And then it, so it came out pretty quickly. Yes, and as uh, Maggie, Nick, and Laura has said, it started out kind of examining this term unwatchable as an aesthetic judgment that comes up in so much writing these days, mm-hmm. but adding and exploring then the different uh, aspects of ethics and social political judgment that lies in this concept. So since this is a film podcast, we also wanted to rethink certain theories of spectatorship, the effective spectatorship, the effective experiences that are so debated right now in academia, but do it in a more personal way so that people could go to the heart of what they themselves found troubling and unwatchable, but then discussing why and how and how to deal with this. I find it interesting that the book published almost within days of the two-year anniversary of uh, the president taking office, <laughs> January of 2019. Um, I must admit myself, when you talk about Unwatchable and what led to the book being pulled together, I remember watching the election returns that night, and literally the next day I just shut off every mm. – I just stopped paying attention to national uh, news. I just said I've got to get I've got to get my head around this, and that's wallowing. It isn't going to help. So I decided <laughs> to just almost completely say it's all unwatchable for now. And it's really only been within the last six months or so that I feel like I've started to reengage at least a little bit, and even that. So I I fully understand what it must have been like at that time when you're starting to discuss this whole issue of unwatchable. Yeah, and that's one thing that goes through many of the essays that our wonderful contributors wrote. Like, should we look away and not think about certain things? Or should we uh, encounter the unwatchable straight on and look Medusa in the eye? Is that something uh, that we have to deal with? Or can we just, like, shut out? That's something that goes through the book in many essays. Or just to, or sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Just to um, piggyback off of what Gunnar was saying, yeah, there, it's kind of an ethical privilege to refuse to watch something horrible that you know is actively happening, like an image of violence, police brutality, uh, drone strikes, something that's horrible that is happening to someone else. We um, open the introduction with a satirical news headline from The Onion, Um, published in August 2017, the day of the Unite the Right rallies in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the article says, um, most Americans now getting their news while peeking out between fingers. And there's a funny image of, you know, a white guy, a middle-class white guy in a polo sort of, 
gazing at his um, the screen of his iPhone uh, while peeking in between his fingers. And yeah, on the one hand, you know, we're constantly bo- bombarded by screens and, um, you know, just blaring news 24-7 of horrific, you know, geopolitical developments, news stories, what have you. But it's, it's a privilege to choose not to look. Um, and obviously not everyone has that choice. And that was something we were trying to um, emphasize uh, across the essays as well. Yeah, I might add as well, um, there's a, one thing that we realized quite quickly is that there, there is an existing literature on what's called extreme cinema. Um, and oftentimes uh, the word unwatchable floats there. So one of the um, contributors to the value Masman Kronsa from Norway um, wrote a book um, on uh, screening the unwatchable. Um, another contributor, Matthias Fry, has written about extreme cinema and the transgressive rhetoric of contemporary art film culture. And so we were building on those studies as well. And those studies in particular look at um, global auteurs um, in the last couple decades. So people like Gaspar Noah, Catherine Billiard, Lars von Trier, Michelle Hanukkah, all of whom are known for making films that are quite um, uncomfortable to watch, especially in their figuration of uh, sex and violence. And um, we were interested in expanding this category of the unwatchable to include not just contemporary art house cinema that renders the act of viewing problematic or uncomfortable, um, but thinking about how the concept of the unwatchable applies more generally to our contemporary media and political environment, as, as Maggie mentioned, um, where oftentimes um, the divide between uh, life and art or reality in my Mises uh, breaks down. So the, the Onion article that Maggie alluded to um, was interesting for us because um, it uh, one of our contributors, Vivian Sobchek, writes about uh, the experience of watching horror films, oftentimes with her fingers covering her eyes. And what we realized, um, and she has a famous essay as well called What My Fingers Knew um, from a kind of phenomenological perspective, and that the mode of spectatorship that she associates with the horror film is now the mode of spectatorship that many of us use while um, while watching the news more generally, um, as you alluded to, Joel, as well, in the day after the election. So that gave us the sense that there was a broader currency, um, that this term could be radically expanded, which in certain ways is the kind of rhetorical gesture of the volume. And of course, your your introduction lays out the overall concept, because when we use the word unwatchable, it has multiple meanings. As you've already pointed out, is it is something unwatchable because... Um, it's something that you find distasteful. Is it unwatchable from f- artists who purposely push the envelope in media, as you've just mentioned? Is it unwatchable because it's the, the, the point of view of the person is not um, to our liking? There's a lot of different views of the word unwatchable, and your introduction uh, does a great job of laying out. I mean, it's a thirty-some page introduction that lays out the theories and the you know the background of this whole concept of unwatchable. And as you pointed out, there's um, there is already a, there is a literature for it. So uh, developing that you know your concepts at the beginning there in that introduction. Uh, did each I think uh, you, Laura, you mentioned that each of you had a section in that that you. Uh, uh, had a part in as far as the introduction was concerned? Well, I was referring to the short introductions oh. that go before collections. Of, Got it. Um, yeah, but we did we did kind of all contribute to pieces to the introduction and then do some dramatic smoothing. And um, um, but I so I think all of us do bring kind of different areas of expertise and we're cultivating different um, you know, writers, but uh, we tried to make it all kind of fit together. 
And the concept kind of grew throughout the process too, because as we have explained, it may have started with political change to the worse and aesthetic change to the worse. But then we went beyond that and tried to also include essays that worked with not only excess and what we can see, but what we can't see and the magnitude sometimes of what you really can't see. Mm-hmm. A huge atom bomb. It's there and it's it looks good. It's a mushroom cloud. But what is really happening? A crack in the ice in Antarctica. It just looks like, like a crack. But it could be the beginning of the end of the world. So there's something about the dialectics between the excess of what we can see and hear. And when that breaks down, we can see it but we can't really see it at the same time. It is unwatchable to a certain extent. And part of the unwatchable is that, as we've talked about, like with the election, it's just something you don't want to have to deal with. You just feel like it's almost like there's 24 hours in the day. I'm usually awake for about eight to 16 of them. I don't need to be dealing with this, whatever it is. I can just ignore it because it doesn't need to be part of my life. Right, Exactly. And speaking of the election, Trump himself used the term unwatchable and a viral tweet to describe Saturday Night Live. So, you know, everyone has to each their own unwatchable. But one tension we were um, kind of struggling to articulate, um, but we're very committed to making this distinction between a kind of personal or subjective unwatchable, which is ostensibly the premise of how we invited Um, authors to contribute what object do you find unwatchable and you know we have some very uh, eloquent descriptions of personal unwatchables which range from you know images of police brutality to the biopic the Hollywood biopic genre Uh, and then uh, we felt a kind of um, moral or epistemological responsibility to try to conceive of something like a collectively unwatchable image. And I think Olenka Zupanchik's um, uh, essay in uh, the first section on violence and testimony about, um, uh, she makes the distinction between a sort of, um, you know, personalized unwatchable and something that that ought be objectively unwatchable, or she said, images, when images melt into visibility that ought not do so. And her example is um, Holocaust tourist photography, when um, she, she, you know, mentions the concentration, former concentration camp Buchenwald, and discusses tourists returning to the site of unbearable atrocity, and then just taking totally normal photographs that erase the impossible violence that, um, you know, was perpetrated in this space. So there, we have to be able to maintain some kind of a distinction between personal triggers and um, images that ought not melt into visibility. Um, you know, that and aesthetics of violence that maybe really shouldn't become seen. So, um, in going through the various essays, and like I say, there with fifty, uh, trying to to weigh them is impossible and that's a good thing everyone has its own um uh view i wanted to talk about a few of them just because i think it will help give us a better sense of this definition uh it just so happens they're all from the the ones i were looking at were from the third part of the books in three parts part one as you mentioned 
Uh, Maggie is uh, Violence and Testimony. Part two is Histories and Genres. And part three, Spectators and Objects. And the one, and you actually mentioned it real briefly, the first one I wanted to at least bring up is the biopic is an affront to the cinema by Jeffrey <laughs> Sconce. And I'll have to admit, one of the reasons that essay hit me was because I don't like biographies either. I I think <laughs> biographies, biopics, there there are major issues with these as as history or, or as as ways to learn about people, famous people. And I think his points were just incredibly right on as far as the idea that, and he uses Lincoln, the movie Lincoln, with Daniel Day-Lewis as, as his main example. Which one of you uh, worked with Jeffrey? I worked with Jeffrey on that, and I have to admit, it's one of the few academic pieces that made me laugh out loud when I read it. And when I first got the text in the email, I was sure, like, wow, this is going to be so fun for so many people. But the main point, again, as you mentioned, is the fact that it's hilariously funny, but at the same time, it has a core of real important discussion about historicity and how we learn about history. And also, of course, about the genrefication of lives, always white men or most often white men. So it's an example of what we really wanted, passionate, fun, but also serious, also going to the heart of a matter and so many people see these films but they not they don't reflect on what these films do to history and our concept of history so that was really really fun and we didn't have to edit nothing at all we just printed it as it was yeah cuz uh, obviously as you know the idea of biopics is you know, most of the people who are, especially in an example like Lincoln, no one knows what he sounded like. Uh, no one knows how he walked. I mean, you can read descriptions and things like that. But to, in any way, shape, or form, try to make us believe that, that this is realistic, <laughs> it just sort of takes away from whatever you're trying to point out in and biographies. And, and plus, then there's also issue of, in many cases, where... Uh, uh, an artist, an author, or a filmmaker is likely to often make the person bigger than they already are or, you know, not willing to completely be uh, fair with the way they view the person, fair negatively as well as positively. Yeah, and, and he has some funny remarks that can seem flippant at the beginning, like, he asks the rhetorical question, wouldn't it be much better if Steven Spielberg had hired Nicolas Cage or <laughs> Sandler? Sandler. <laughs> and what would have happened? And you start laughing because that's hilarious. But then you think, oh, yeah, what would really have happened? What would have happened to the, the representation, the idea of realism? What would happen to the character itself? And at the end, what would happen to history? So another one, and hopefully, this is Barbara Hammer's Watch at Your Own Peril. Uh, I hope, who, who was uh, the person who worked with Barbara? I worked with her on that. Uh, one of the reasons that particular one hit me is because I, t I think I'm in, not I think I know I am, I'm in the age group that Barbara talks about where I don't watch a huge amount of television, but when I do, it tends to be things where the commercials are being 
are, you know, the example of commercials, in this case, drug commercials that are regularly pushed at you in these shows, especially things that f- often for older people. And, and, and her point in, in Watch It or at Your Own Peril are specifically cancer drug commercials. And I'm the one of those people who will sit there and, and watch these commercials and say, who are they aiming these at? I mean, are people, is the idea being that people are being told your, your doctor may not be, have your own best interest because they're not giving you this drug? Anyway, so uh, what was, how was it working with Barbara on, on, on this essay? Well, we were so happy when she said yes. I mean, it was incredible um, that that she was willing to kind of devote her time. And, you know, she knew she was dying and um, was that was very present in how she um, kind of decided to, to spend her time. Um, and so it so it, and this was another piece that came to us basically fully formed and we were like, run it. Um, so the first part of it. Um, she t- complains about these ads of like you know, butterflies and sunshine and like, you know, what, what she calls glamorous white hairs romping with children's and dogs because um, they've taken these drugs. So that this kind of vision of this like faux ideal uh, imagination of, of what it's like to be old, she found offensive um, in addition to those like long lists of side effects, but then also the way cancer patients are framed as being like at war with cancer at, um, you know, you know, fighting and, um, the battle. And, um, and so then the last part is a kind of last part of her, um, contribution is a series of all caps, like statements. Mm -hmm. Cancer is not a battle. Cancer is a disease. There is not a war in cancer. Just kind of laying out this critique of the way, uh, people, I think, well-intentionally frame cancer, but in a way that she finds totally unhelpful. Yeah, if, uh, one of the reasons the essay, well, one of the many reasons is uh, obvious. Part of it is of personal in the sense that family issues, as of course, everybody just about, I can't think of a single person these days who doesn't know somebody or uh, knows of people in their own family who were uh, um, affected by cancer. But also, I, it, it's the same thing I've read from other authors uh, and other people who have written about the idea of uh, um, cancer and how it's, it's, it's often talked about in the issue of, uh, as you point out, the issue of, of fighting and all those kind of things. And so I, that's why I found it so interesting because uh, it, it did take a, a point of view that I certainly um, agreed and, and identified with. Uh, And then another one that I noted is Why We Can't Take a Joke by Raul Perez. Uh, Mm -hmm. Who worked with Raul on this one? I worked with him on that essay, and it's um, a kind of brilliant critique of this um, discourse of uh, accusing liberals of being snowflakes, the, the liberal snowflake accusation, you know, liberals with their um, safe spaces and their trigger warnings and political correctness just can't take a joke. And he really um, scrutinizes this documentary that, you know, ostensibly makes a version of that argument. And, you know, it's funded by a far right think tank and it's just completely serving certain far right um, corporate and class interests. And he really, yeah, that's another example of an essay that 
does such a good job of, on the one hand, being very accessible, um, uh, kind of inhabiting inhabiting the enjoyment of the prompt itself. There's something oddly pleasurable about writing an essay on the very thing that you say you can't bear. I think there's a lot of joy in Raul's essay on, you know, why we allegedly can't take a joke, but at the same time, it's incredibly incisive. And so the fourth one, and I'm going to be shocked if it turns out it was one that Nick did, because that would mean I was four for four and picking ones with different editor. Uh, Twilight of the Dead, um, who worked with... Oh, yeah. You know, that's magical. It actually is. That is mine. Yeah. <laughs> that was pure luck. I mean, I did not ask in advance. I just picked four essays that I thought were interesting, and it just turned out that each of you did one of them. So that worked out better than I could have expected. And basically, Twilight of the Dead, its main focus is German censorship. And and if you could talk a little bit about uh, it, it, the authors are Philip Stiazny and mm. Bennett Togler. Yes, so both of them are um, kind of big figures in Berlin's uh, film scene. Uh, Philip Stiazny is a good friend and colleague of mine who is a German film historian. Um, he's the editor of Germany's only journal devoted to German film history, uh, and Bennett Togler is a subtitler. And the two of them uh, started a film series about a decade ago at uh, Kino Babylon, uh, a big kind of old style movie house that goes back to the 1920s that's on Rosa Luxemburg Platz in Berlin. And they did basically kind of like a, it was called Nachtschicht, uh, so night shift in German. And uh, it was where they would run uh, old prints of often of B-movies, basically. And I remember going to some of the screenings myself when I lived in Berlin. And um, they both have a kind of fascination with films that seem to be beyond the realm of taste. Um, so kind of sleazy movies, B-movies, um, ones that are... Um, uh, you know, kind of beyond um, what uh, is usually is considered reputable. And they did a film series where they would show movies that oftentimes um, had been censored or um, in copies that, of films that weren't accessible in German film archives um, because either they were deemed you know, culturally insignificant or um, they were actually outright banned or censored. And one of the things that that essay brings out so beautifully, and it's again, like the previous essays, both extraordinarily funny and enjoyable to read, and also quite theoretically incisive, is that when we talk about the unwatchable, there's another material dimension as well, which is that films, um, and in this case, they're talking about 16 and 35 millimeter prints, um, become unwatchable also through a process of material decay as well. And so they talk about the experience of showing films, including um, the experience of showing Ilse Shewolf of SS, so a Canadian Nazi exploitation film from the 1970s, um, that are so degraded in their prints that they almost become unwatchable. And the kind of paradox for them is that films that were once deemed unwatchable for cultural um, or aesthetic reasons become unwatchable partly because the prints have decayed so much and that by showing the films to audiences, so by rendering them watchable again, they actually also contribute to their unwatchability insofar as they contribute to the further degradation of the print um, that will at some point um, uh, you know, become outright um, unwatchable. And of course, the essay is also about the shift from analog to digital formats. Um, and it ends with this kind of extraordinary irony of seeing them, um, Ilse Shewolf of the come out on DVD uh, restored version, um, uh, you know, in a flawless and clean print um, that they deem kind of ironically a, a disappointment um, because it lacked, you know, the kind of aura of sorts that they had experienced together in the collective space of the theater. Yeah, 
I know I probably I probably sound like an old person sometimes when I decry the switch to almost all digital projections now in theater in the in the typical theater where uh, nowadays you it's just you you lose the actual physical aspect of film um, and uh, probably you know not that I'm saying that we it's best to have old beat up uh, prints anymore but still uh, it is something to be said for uh, the human aspect of film as a physical medium absolutely we trace them historicity as Gunnar mentioned before yeah so what i'd like to do now is just sort of give you each a chance to talk a little bit about one or two essays and i don't want to I'm trying not to say one's better than the other because they all, every one of them, and given how short they are, it's that well, they all are. It's a great collection as far as you can read a few and then come back to them. You can skip around depending on the areas that you're interested in. And there's a good listing, there's a good filmography and decent indexes. So if you want to see if a topic that you are interested in has been covered, uh, or at least mentioned, you can do that as well. So it's it's such a great collection for 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 that aspect of it. But I'd like to, if there are specific essays that you each of you believe uh, were particularly useful for your own ideas of the concept of unwatchable, and we'll just go ahead and start with Gunnar with that. Yeah, like so many people, I do go to YouTube and look around there and find a lot of stuff and spend some time going on strange journeys. And Jonathan Crary submitted a text called Terminal Radiance to our collection that is very typical of some of the things we try to do. And he does it in a specifically wonderful and scary way because he talks about all these clips you can find on YouTube of nuclear detonations. And he talks specifically about the biggest bomb that has ever been dropped on the Earth, the Tsar Bomba, a huge Soviet bomb from 61. And the clip you can find on YouTube, and it's just like any other clips. It's on the one hand scary, and on the other hand it's beautiful, and it's just like any thousands and thousands and thousands of clips. And then he goes on to try to find out what happens when we watch these and what is really represented in the images. And he talks about scientific mastery and he talks about magnitude and he brings it all back to contemporary world by linking it, this old clip from 1961 that we can just accidentally touch upon if we surf on YouTube, he brings it back to contemporary American politics and the revamping of the uh, nuclear weapons arsenal in the U.S. that actually Obama started in 2016, that never had a whisper of protest from his admirers, he says. So it's an essay that takes one of these many objects, one of these many things we can find online a simple object, and he does something amazing with it and shows what it's really, what it really is, what the magnitude of this simple 30-second clip is, and how it's linked to the things we do and the choices we have in politics today. So it's really scary, 
but also wonderfully illuminating and is one of the many, many wonderful contributions we had in the book. Thanks for that. Like I say, these are, they're all great. And it's, it's great to get these um, um, points of view from those of you having worked directly with the people who produce them. Laura, what would you want to highlight? So one that really resonated with me is by Danielle Pierce. It's called Unwitnessable, Outrageous, Ableist Impersonations and Unwitnessed Everyday Violence. So this essay starts with that moment in Donald Trump's uh, campaign, presidential campaign in November 2015, when he mocks a disabled reporter on stage. Um, And then this gets a huge kind of outrage and backlash. And uh, they did a poll that said this was the worst offense he had done. And you, you can think of the many actual things he had done. Um, but this was sort of seen by the public as the worst thing he had done. So um, Danielle Pierce is a disabled non-binary scholar and performer and filmmaker. And um, and so, you know, a lot of their friends were like, hey, hey, Danielle, like, the, it, isn't this a terrible thing? Like, how, how can he do this? And Danielle actually argues that peop- these people who say that have actually see it in the wrong way, that they see this kind of public um, performance of offensiveness as being, you know, the sign of sort of harm to disabled people. But um, Danielle makes the argument that it's actually these things that people don't see and don't notice, the the ways in which disabled people are incarcerated at much higher rates, um, the way they're subject to police violence, to poverty, that things that all of these, these are kind of the, the sort of unremarked everyday violences against disabled people. Um, they also make the argument that calling Trump crazy, calling Trump an idiot, a moron, that these, th- these are also forms of ableism uh, against people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, and so there's a way in which the kind of performance of outrage on behalf of disabled people uh, doesn't get at the actual violences that disabled people are uh, experiencing. And then finally, Danielle suggests even the, the title of the volume itself, Unwatchable, is uh, prioritizing people, you know, one mode of, of interacting with the world, which is vision, sight. And, and so Danielle suggests maybe unwitnessable would be a way to kind of get at some of these core ideas without the, the focus on sight. So I just found, again, in 1,500 words, so many um, just powerful um, and persuasive arguments in this essay. Actually, like that unwitnessable, given that, as we've talked about briefly, with degradation, we can have audio, which is unlistenable, which, of course, wouldn't fit into the un, un, unwatchable concept based on that word, but it's the same idea that we can have the same, uh, for example, our Hitler speech is unlistenable. There's mm-hmm. a, that's something that could be viewed at in a number of different variety, ways as well, as, as you've pointed out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Thanks for that, Laura. Uh, Maggie, what uh, what did you want to uh, bring up uh, as essay or essays that uh, were particularly of interest to you? Oh, this is always the hardest question for me. I, I just kind of want to describe every essay in the volume because I really love them all so much. Um, I'd mentioned Alenka Zupanchik's essay earlier and the distinction she makes between the objectively unwatchable as opposed to, um, you know, the kind of individualistically unpalatable. And that was definitely um, 
uh, one of my favorite in the volume. I also really identified with Alex Bush's essay, Breakaway, uh, which I think Laura or Gunnar mentioned earlier, um, which is about, she's a climate change scholar. She's right, she, you know, is writing her dissertation and book on uh, cinema and climate change. And she writes about um, not being able to confront news headlines or images of the breakaway of the Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica. And I've been thinking about that a lot, especially in relation to the recent discourse about the Green New Deal and what it will take in terms of um, environmental change and kind of social and, ec and economic reform to make our future feel uh, remotely livable. And this gesture of turning away or not being able to confront images of climate catastrophe and environmental degradation is really um, important to think through. And there's something therapeutic about writing about why we can't look. I mean, we talk about climate change denialism on the right, people like Mitch McConnell, who just cynically profit off of uh, pretending that climate change isn't real, or, you know, Jim Einhoff bringing a snowball to the floor of the Senate in February or whatever, proving that climate change is, you know, a hoax. But I think there's something about just the disavowal of the horrors that we know are um, happening sort of regardless of whether we look at it or not. And in the Green New Deal video that uh, Naomi Klein just produced that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez narrated, it was posted on the website, The Intercept. Um, at the end of the video, AOC says, we can be whatever we have the courage to see as a kind of rallying cry for decarbonization. And I think that's really poignant. And it's, um, and I think Alex Bush is very eloquently making a similar kind of argument about uh, the unwatchable and its relation to climate change in her essay. And beyond that, I love the takedowns in uh, part three, Spectators and Objects. I mean, um, they're just so much fun to read while also still really um, kind of subs being substantively insightful, like Jack Halberstam's takedown of Manchester by the Sea and White Men Behaving Sadly, Brandy Monk-Payton's takedown of white liberal savior films, particularly The Help. Uh, Jeffrey Sconce's piece on the biopic, well, the biopic is an affront to cinema, and Julian ha Julian Hanisch's on uh, oh inventiveness, oh imaginativeness, precious cinema and its discontents, colon a rant where he'll never um, allow you to look at Wes Anderson films in the same way if you think you find them watchable now. You won't after you read his essay. That sounds great. Uh, I notice certain essays are being mentioned more than once, which I think uh, speaks to their relevance. Um, so, Nick, uh, you get to say sort of that you be you get to be the last one to present your particular essays that you wanted to to, to emphasize. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, Joel, that um, we distinguish between different modes of unwatchability. So there's oftentimes um, an empirical sense, something that you literally um, can't watch versus something that's more normatively unwatchable that you deem um, from a kind of moral, uh, ethical viewpoint unwatchable. There's a descriptive or prescriptive sense. There's a weak or strong sense, contextual and absolute. And one of the um, uh, genres that we found particularly fruitful uh, in this regard was that of the avant-garde. And so we have a whole chapter devoted to the avant-garde that I thought came together really beautifully. And um, as Laura mentioned previously in the interview, 
we gave our contributors kind of free reign to choose which media object they wanted to write about. And with all but one uh, exception, everyone magically chose a different media object. But we actually did have two people write about Andy Warhol's um, eight-hour film Empire from 1964. And um, we were worried at first that there would be overlap, but um, in, it was actually amazing that the two essays complement each other beautifully. So we have one essay by Jim Hoberman, the former film critic for the Village Voice, who continues to write prolifically for various uh, newspapers and journals, and then Noel Carroll, um, a film philosopher, uh, both of which deal with different aspects of uh, Warhol's empire. And so I wanted to uh, maybe focus on those two uh, in my remarks. Uh, so Jim Hoberman kind of reconstructs uh, empire's history of exhibition uh, and reception um, all the way from 1964 to the present. And he points out a lot of aspects of that film that um, that many of us are unfamiliar with, um, especially those of us who haven't sat through all eight hours of it. Um, and he deems it both an unwatched and unwatchable masterpiece. And then Noel Carroll, um, comes at the film uh, from a number of other angles as well that help illuminate it. So one of which is he puts it in the context of a kind of trajectory of films that are monumental and dealing that thematize temporal experience. And so he uh, mentions Michael Snow's Wavelength, Hollis Frampton's Soren's Lemma, all the way up to Christian Markley's um, The Clock from uh, 2010. Um, he also, though, is interested in this question of films as endurance tests. Um, and he, one of the brilliant points that he makes is that um, in film theory, uh, Sigurd Veratov, the Soviet uh, filmmaker and film theorist, invoked what he called kino eye or camera eye. So the things that the camera lens um, is able to depict that the human eye would be imprivy towards. So something akin to what Benjamin would later call the optical unconscious. And he, what he says is that one of the things that distinguishes the camera eye from the human eye is that the camera eye has a kind of unlimited endurance that the human eye lacks. Um, and one of the things that um, Warhol's film does, he argues, is um, highlight that very discrepancy uh, between the two. And he makes one final point that I wanted to mention as well, which is that in philosophical aesthetics, there's what's known as the acquaintance principle, this idea that in order to judge and appreciate a work, you have to have um, watched it or you have to have beheld it. And um, what he points out is that what's so innovative about Warhol's film is that um, you don't actually have to sit through all eight plus hours of it in order to appreciate its kind of conceptual gambit. And so he says the film in, in certain ways is a kind of challenge to that uh, principle in philosophical aesthetics whereby one has to be acquainted with a work in its entirety in order to be able to write about it, which I thought was a brilliant contribution to the volume. Well, I was really, this has been an, a great discussion with all of you and I really appreciate it. But before we uh, to, before we say goodbye, I really want to give everybody a chance to sort of uh, uh, conclude or give them a chance to to talk a little bit about what what were other work you might be doing or or similar ideas that you want to make sure uh, people know about. So uh, let's start with Laura. All right. Well, in my research, I found that uh, transgender, openly transgender people have been making lots of films since at least the 90s, thousands of films, but they have become unwatchable for a very pragmatic reason in that they don't necessarily have distributors. Uh, they might just be in someone's uh, closet or on their personal website. And so the project I'm working on now is to make this huge body of work made by openly trans artists more visible, more watchable, that is, to the public by creating a website where people will be able to easily find um, 
trans films and be able to search and visualize uh, the sort of trends in trans filmmaking over the last few decades. So that's called Transgender Media Portal. We're going to launch the public website uh, pretty soon in the next month or so. So uh, give us a Google search. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for the opportunity to chat about Unwatchable. Thanks, Laura. Uh, Gunnar? Yeah, I'm working on sound, and we tried to get more sound into the book because most of the media that the, our contributors write about are audiovisual. But it's a little bit hard because the terms are not as well developed when it comes to sound as the images. So that's why it ended up as unwatchable and not unlistenable or some form of combination or permutation. But right now, I'm working on another edited collection about the rockumentary, something that many people will find thoroughly unwatchable, but others will find very, very pleasant, pleasurable, both when it comes to images and when it comes to sound. And it's striking me that rock and roll and popular music is so important in everybody's lives. There's very little written about it when it comes to documentary and how the modern form of the rock documentary has been important in people's lives and in documentary film theory. So I've gone back to sound, I've gone back to twang to see how rock have shaped our lives. That sounds very interesting. It was just pure luck that I happened to be watching rewatching some of Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap this morning. So it just happens to sort of uh, fall into that area, even though it was a mockumentary instead of a rockumentary. It could, it could easily have ended up in our volume because it's intensely pleasurable, but also intensely painful at the same time. So it lends itself to the type of passionate discussion, opening up a heuristic approach to simple things, opening up instead of closing down. But that'll be for another volume. Sounds good. Maggie, what uh, are you working on, or what uh, did you want to sort of say in, as we're finishing up? Yeah, so thanks again so much, Joel. This is really generous of you, and you always ask such great questions. Um, I'm currently working on a book that's sort of a spinoff of my first book about slapstick comedians and silent cinema. This one is about the history of women who allegedly died from laughing too hard. Um, and it's the relationship between the history of women's laughter and the kind of clinical culture surrounding female hysteria from the mid-19th century to the present. And like The Unwatchable, which can be intensely pleasurable to write about, when I first found these obituary items from the late 19th century about women who allegedly died from laughing too hard, which I don't think they actually died. I think that it was more of a regulatory discourse in order to terrify women into not laughing out loud in public. Um, the, the headlines themselves, like women goes to the theater to watch a, tra a comedy and ends up furnishing a tragedy because she laughed herself to death, almost seemed like sad punchlines at first read, but then there's so much more behind them, so much more going on um, behind the sort of, you know, initial kind of morbid um, uh, newsflash. And, and that's been really kind of fascinating to get to the bottom of. And... In addition to that book, I'm, I co-edited a section for readers of the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, formerly known as Cinema Journal. 
stay tuned for the next issue, which is coming out later this month. There's an in-focus section on comedy and humor studies. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. And also, I've been co-editing a volume which is currently in production on a topic related to the unwatchable, uh, which is media abjection or the abject. The book is called Abjection Incorporated, Mediating the Politics of Pleasure and Violence. And it's about how the abject is no longer just that horrific uh, unmentionable thing that, you know, we don't deal with that's cast out at the dregs of society, but now a really significant form of uh, social currency and political capital, as we've seen um, with Trumpism or uh, white supremacist movements trying to appropriate the kind of logistics of, of uh, or the rhetoric of victimhood. And that book is coming out with Duke University Press in January. Sounds good. Nick? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Joel, for the conversation. Um, what I'm working on at the moment is uh, my first monograph, which will be about, uh, it's called Cinema and the Crisis of Historicism. And I'm looking in particular at how in interwar Germany, um, debates over the concept of history, over the meaning, directionality, course of history, intersected with um, emerging theories of cinema and innovations in filmmaking. And it intersected also with the unwatchable volume insofar as some of the key theorists that I'm looking at, like Siegfried Krakow or Walter Benjamin, um, I gain kind of new resonances in relationship to the topic of the unwatchable. So Krakauer, for example, has a famous section in the epilogue of his uh, theory of film from 1960 called The Head of Medusa, where he argues that um, cinema allows us to confront um, otherwise um, unfaceable horrors like the concentration camp footage um, of Auschwitz um, or even something like Franju's um, Blood of the Beast um, uh, in a kind of mediated way, um, you know, and he likens that to the myth of Medusa um, from Greek mythology. Um, but the current chapter that I'm just wrapping up now traces Krakow's writings um, about uh, the historical film genre, actually, from his early days as a film critic for the Frankfurter Zeitung, um, beginning uh, in the early 1920s, all the way up to his final book called History of the Last Things Before the Last. And um, it was interesting to read Jeffrey Sconce's essay, which Gunnar discussed earlier, um, where he draws on Jean-Louis Comolli and essay a body too much to kind of critique the historical film in the vein of something like Lincoln um, by Spielberg. And what I'm interested in doing is, is showing to what extent Krakauer anticipated some of these uh, debates about the historical film and the way in which historical films always necessarily make recourse to, to fiction or aesthetics, even when they show the utmost concern for verisimilitude when they depict the past. Well, it sounds, I was very happy to speak to all four of you, and I hope uh, as your other works come out, if uh, we have a reason to cross paths again, I would definitely look forward to speaking with you again. Um, and uh, thank you for taking the time, uh, uh, and I really appreciate all your insights. And have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks for this great discussion. Hopefully it'll help you better identify your personal unwatchable example. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.